Chapter 28 of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unicorns by James Hunnaker. Chapter 28. Violinists Now and Yesteryear. With the hair of the horse and the entrails of the cat, magicians of the four strings weave their potent spells. What other instrument devised by the hand of man has ever approached the violin? Gladstone compared it with the locomotive, yet complete as is the mechanism of the wheeled monster, its type is transitional. Steam is already supplanted by electricity, while the violin is perfection, as perfect as a sonnet, and in its capacity for the expression of emotion next to the human voice. Indeed, it is even more poignant orchestrally massed it can be as terribly beautiful as an army with banners in quartet form it represents the very soul of music it is both sensuous and intellectual the modern grand pianoforte with its great range its opulence of tone its delicacy of mechanism is nevertheless a monster of music if placed beside the violin with its simple curves its almost primitive method of music-making. The scraping of one substance against another goes back to prehistoric times, nay, may be seen in the grasshopper and its ingenious manner of producing sound. But the violin, as we know it today, is not such an old invention. It was the middle of the sixteenth century before it made its appearance, with its varnished and mottled back. Restricted as is its range of dynamics, the violin has had for its votaries men of such widely differing temperaments as Paganini and Spohr, Wilhelma and Sarasate, Joachim and Isai. Its literature does not compare with that of the piano, for which Bach, Beethoven, Schumann, Chopin, and Brahms have written their choicest music. Yet the intimate nature of the violin its capacity for passionate emotion crowns it and not the organ with its mechanical tonal effects as the king of instruments nor does the voice make the peculiar appeal of the violin its lowest note is the g below the treble clef and its top note a mere squeak but it seems in a few octaves to have imprisoned within its wooden walls a miniature world of feeling even in the hands of a clumsy amateur it has the formidable power of giving pain, while in the grasp of a master it is capable of arousing the soul. No other instrument has the ecstatic quality, neither the shallow-toned pianoforte nor the more mellow and sonorous violoncello. The angelic, demoniacal, lovely, intense tones of the violin are without parallel in music or nature. It is as if this box with four strings across its varnished belly had a rarer nervous system than all other instruments. It is a cry, a shriek, a hymn to heaven, a call to arms, an exquisite evocation, a brilliant series of multicolored visions, a broad song of passion, or mocking laughter what cannot the violin express if the soul that guides it be that of an artist otherwise it is only a fiddle 
it is the hero the heroine the vanguard of every composition as a solo instrument in a concerto its still small voice is heard above the din and thunder of the accompaniment in a word this tiny music box is the ruler among instruments times have changed since sixteen fifty eight in england when the following delightful ordinance was made for the benefit of musical genius or otherwise and be it enacted that if any person or persons commonly called fiddlers or minstrels shall at any time after the said first of july be taken playing fiddling or making music in any inn alehouse or tavern or shall be proffering themselves or desiring or entreating any person or persons to hear them play shall be adjudged rogues vagabonds and sturdy beggars decidedly england was not then the abode of the muses for the poor actor suffered in company with the musician you wonder whether this same penalty would be imposed upon musical managers they certainly do entreat the public to listen to their fiddlers yet in sixteen ninety when corelli the father of violin playing led the band at cardinal ottoboni's house in rome he stopped the music because his churchly patron was talking and he made an epigram that has since served for other artists monsignor remarked this intrepid musician when asked why the band had ceased i fear the music might interrupt the conversation how well liszt knew this anecdote may be recalled by his retort to a czar of russia under similar circumstances until a few months ago i had not heard eugene Issey play for years in the old days he had enchanted my ears and in company with gerardi the violoncellist and pugno the pianist had made music fit for the gods considering the flight of the years i found the art of the belgian comparatively untouched like liszt like paderewski Issey has his good moments and his indifferent he is the Paderewski of the strings in his magical interpretations, and unlike his younger contemporaries, he still carves out the whole block of the great classics, sonatas, and concertos. He plays little things tenderly, exquisitely, and the man is first the musician, then the virtuoso. I heard neither Paganini nor Spohr joachim wilhelmi wienowski and Issey i have heard and seen my memory assures me of keener satisfactions than any book about these giants of the four strings could give me the first violinist i ever listened to was in the early seventies i was hardly at the age of musical discrimination yet i remember much it was at the opera a matinee in the philadelphia academy of music Nilsson was singing. I can't recall her on that occasion, though it seems only the other day when Carlotta Potti sang the Queen of the Night in the Magic Flute and limped over the stage. Possibly the lameness fixed the event in my mind more than the music. A front set was dropped between the acts at this particular matinee. I do not recollect the name of the opera and through a practicable door came an old gentleman with a violin in his hands 
he was white-haired he wore white side-whiskers and he looked to my young eyes like a prosperous banker he played it was as the sound of falling waters on a moonlight night i asked the name of the old gentleman my father said henri vieux which told me nothing then though it means much to me now what did he play i do not know yet whenever i hear the younger men attack his fantasy caprice his ballade in polonaise his concertos i think proudly i have heard Viotam. he was a belgian born eighteen twenty died eighteen eighty one his style was finished elegant charming he was a pupil of de barrio and represented with his master perfection in the belgian school after an interval of some years i heard the only pupil of paganini as he called himself camillo sivori it was in paris eighteen seventy nine the precise day i can't say but my letter from paris which appeared in the philadelphia evening bulletin was dated january thirty one eighteen seventy nine i still preserve it in a venerable scrapbook i was in my teens but i wrote with the courage of youthful ignorance as follows it almost sounds like a musical criticism although it was generally supposed that Sivuri, the great violinist would not play this season in paris he nevertheless delighted a large audience last sunday at the concert populaire with his lovely music he is no longer a young man but the vigor and fire of his playing are immense he gave with the orchestral accompaniment a berceuse his own composition with unapproachable delicacy it was played throughout with the mute in contrast came a mouvement perpetuel Sivori's tone is not like that of joachim or wilhelma but it is sweeter than either it reminds one of gold drawn to cobweb fineness as an encore he played the too well-known carnival of venice that it was given in the style of his illustrious master paganini who may say but it was amazing painful finally tiresome that same season i heard anna bach boscovitz diemer plant theodore ritter the two jails fat alfred and his thin wife Savori, 1815-1894. Dapper, modest, stood up in the vast spaces of the Cirque du Vert, which was engaged every Sunday by Jacques Padelou and his orchestra. Jacob Wolfgang was the real name of this conductor, who braved the wrath of his audiences by putting Wagner on his programs. And one afternoon we had a pitched battle over Rimsky-Korsakov's symphonic poem, Sadka. Savuri played a tarantella. Every tone was clearly heard in the great crowded auditorium. Pupils of de Barrio and Paganini I have heard, though I hardly recall the style of the former and nothing of the latter. But there was little of Paganini's fiery attack in Savuri, possibly he was too old fire and fury i later found in vienowski i must not omit the name of ola boule eighteen ten to eighteen eighty four though i heard him as a boy i best remember him in eighteen eighty 
when he gave his last concerts in America. In the fifties, while on a visit to my father's house, he went on his two thumbs around a dining table, lifting his body clear from the ground. His muscular power was remarkable. It showed in the dynamics of his robust and sentimental playing. Spohr discouraged him as a boy, but later spoke of his wonderful playing and sureness of his left hand. Unfortunately, like Paganini, he sacrifices what is artistic to something that is not quite suitable to the noble instrument. His tone, too, is bad. For Spohr, anyone's tone was naturally enough bad, as he possessed the most monumental tone that ever came from a violin. The truth is that Ole Bull was not a classical player. As I remember him, he could not play in strict tempo. Like Chopin, he indulged in the rubato and abused the portamento. But he knew his public. America a half-century ago, particularly in the regions he visited, was not in the mood for sonatas or concertos. Old Dan Tucker and the Arkansas Traveler were the mode. Poole played them both, played jigs and old tunes, roused the echoes with a star-spangled banner and Irish melodies. He played such things beautifully, and it would have been musical snobbery to say that you didn't like them. You couldn't help yourself. The grand old fellow bewitched you. He was a handsome Merlin, with a touch of the charlatan and a touch of list in his tall, willowy figure, small waist, and heavy head of hair, such white hair. It tumbled in masses about his kindly face, like one of his native Norwegian cataracts. He was the most picturesque old man I ever saw, except Walt Whitman, at that time a steady attendant of the Carl Gardner String Quartet concerts in Philadelphia. And what Walt didn't know about music, he made up in his love for stray dogs. He was seldom without canine company. Those were the days when Prima's La Melancholy and Vianowski's Legende were the two favorite yet remote peaks of the students' repertoire. How we loved them. Then came Vianowski with Rubinstein in 1872-1873, and such violin-playing America had never before heard, nor has it since, let me hasten to add. This pole, 1835 to 1880, was a brilliant master. His dash and fire and pathos carried you off your feet. His tone at times was like molten metal. He had a caressing and martial bow. His technique was infallible. His temperament truly Slavic, languorous, subtle, fierce. Vianowski always reminded me of a red-hot coal. How chivalric is his Polonaise! that old war-horse. How elegiac his legende! His favorite pupil was Leopold Lichtenberg, the greatest violin talent that has been thus far unearthed in America. Lichtenberg had everything when a youth. Temperament, brains, musical feeling, and great technical ability. After Wienowski followed Wilhelma, who did not efface his memory, but plunged one into another atmosphere that of the calm, profound, untroubled, and classic. No doubt Spohr's tone was larger, yet this is difficult to believe. 
Wilhelma drew from his instrument the noblest sounds I ever heard. Not Joachim, not Issei excelled him in cantabile. He was the first to play Wagner transcriptions. No wonder Wagner made him leader of the strings at Beirut in 1876. How he read the Beethoven Concerto, the Bach Chacon, or the D-flat Nocturne of Chopin, in D, or the much-abused Mendelssohn E minor concerto, with Max Vogrich accompanying him at the piano. A giant in physique, when he faced his audience, there was something of the majestic fair-haired god Wotan in his immobile posture. He never appealed to his public as did Wienowski. There was always something of chilly grandeur and remoteness in Wilhelma's play. The last time I saw him was at Marienbad, shortly before his death, where, a stoop-shouldered, gray-haired old man, he was taking a cure. He walked slowly, his hands clasped behind him, in his eyes the vacant look of one busy with memories. He reminded me of Beethoven's pictures. Josef Joachim, that mighty Hungarian, was past his prime when I heard him in London, he played out of tune. Some of his pupils have imitated his failing. But whether in a Beethoven quartet, concerto, sonata with piano, he always stamped on your consciousness that Josef Joachim was the greatest violinist that had ever lived. This is, of course, absurd, this unfair comparison of one artist with another. Yet it is human to compare, and if a violinist can evoke such a vision of perfection, then he must be of uncommon powers. Maud Powell, a distinguished pupil of Joachim, has asserted that it took her three years before she could recover herself in the presence of Joachim's overwhelming personality. Yet he struck me as not at all assertive. He seemed an objective player, i.e., you thought only of Beethoven, of Brahms, as he calmly delivered himself of their Olympian measures. The grand manner is now out of fashion. We care more for exotic rhetoric than for simple and lofty measures. Sarasate and Dengremont charmed me more. Wienowski set my blood coursing faster. But in Joachim's presence, I felt as if near some old Grecian temple, hallowed by the presence of oft-worshipped gods. Remigny was a puzzle. He could play divinely and scratch diabolically. He belonged to that old romantic school in which pose and gesture, contortion and grimace, occupied a prominent place. I had an opportunity to study Remigny, whose Austrian name was Hoffman, 1830-1898, at close quarters. He brought to my father's house, in the early eighties, his favorite instruments, and such a wild night of music I never heard. He played hour after hour, everything from Bach to Brahms, and incidentally scolded Brahms for stealing some of his, Remigny's, Hungarian dances, which is a joke, as Brahms only followed the examples of Liszt and Joachim in avowedly employing Hungarian folk melodies. He did such tricks as dashing off in impeccable tune his arrangement of the D-flat valse of Chopin in double notes at a terrific tempo. Violinists will understand the feat when I tell them that the key was the original one, D-flat. 
he made the walls shiver when he struck his bow clangorously in the opening chords of the Rokotsi march. What a hero then seemed this stout little prancing bald-headed man with the face of an unfrocked priest. How he could talk in a half-dozen different languages. He had traveled enough and encountered enough celebrated people to fill a dozen volumes with his recollections. He was a violinist of unquestionable power. That he deteriorated in his later years was to have been expected. Liszt understood and appreciated Remini from the first. He nicknamed him the Kossuth of the Fiddle. To recall all the celebrities of the violin I have heard since 1870 would be hardly possible. I've forgotten most of them, though I do remember that wonderful boy, Maurice d'Engremont, who ended his life so rich in possibilities, it is said as a billiard marker. He was spoiled by women, for he was a comely lad. Another wonder child kept his head, and today fascinating Fritz Kreisler is a master of masters, and a favorite in America without peer. He first appeared at Boston, and in 1888. In Paris I recall Marsic and his polished style, the gallant Sohre, Johannes Wolff, and the brilliant and elegant Timothy Adamowski and in 1880, Marie Theo and her woman quartet, a member of which was Jean Franco, the sister of the conductors and violinists, Sam Franco and Nahan Franco, Cesar Thompson, the miraculous, C.M. Leffler, subtle player, subtle composer, Sarasate with his sweet tone, Brodsky and his masculine manner, Willie Burmester and his pallid pyrotechnics, the learned Shradiak, the bohemian Andrzejczyk, the dashing Ovida Muson, Bernhard Listerman, Karl Hollier, Gregorowicz, the languid, brilliant Marteau, Alexander Pechinikov, the Russian, the musicianly Max Bendix, the astonishing John Rhodes, the wonder-worker Kubelik, and his icy perfections, Koshian, Willie Hess, Ephraim Zimbalist, Albert Spaulding, Arthur Hartman, and a myriad of spoiled youths. Von Vexy, Horsowski, all have crossed the map of my memory, and Franz Niesel and the Niesel Quartet, dispensers of musical joys for decades. But alas, no more. Alas. I would not barter memories of their music-making for a wilderness of virtuosi. I must not forget Joseph White, the Cuban violinist, who was with Theodore Thomas one season. His style was finished and Parisian. He was a mulatto and a handsome man. The night I heard him, he played the Mendelssohn Concerto, and at the beginning of the slow movement, his chanterelle broke. Calmly he took concertmaster Richard Arnold's proffered instrument and triumphantly finished the composition. Three violinists abide clear in my recollection, Wienowski, Wilhelma, and Ise. The last named is dearer because nearer, contrary to the supposed rule that the older the thing, the worse it is. Ise is the magician of the violin. He holds us in a spell with that elastic curving bow of his, with those many-colored tones, tender, silky, sardonic, amorous, rich, and ductile. 
He interprets the classics as well as the romantics, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Viotam as well as Sibelius. Above all else, his mastery of the violin's technical mysteries looms his musical temperament. He has imagination. I have reserved the women for the last, a goodly artistic company. It is not necessary to go back to the Milanola sisters. We still cherish remembrances of Camilla Urso and her broad musicianly manner, the finished style of Norman Neruda, Maris Soldat, the gifted and unhappy Arma Sankra, Nettie Carpenter, Teresina Tua, who did not become a fiddle fairy when she visited us in 1887, Leonora Jackson, Dora Becker, Olive Mead, and Maud Powell. In Europe many years ago, I heard Marcella Sembrick, who, after playing the E-flat polonaise of Chopin on the piano, picked up a violin and dashed off the Wienowski polonaise. These feats were followed by songs, one being Viardo Garcia's arrangement of Chopin's D major mazurka. Sembrick is the blue rose among great singers. Garica, Power, Nikisch were at first violinists. So was Fritz Scheel, late conductor of the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra. Franz Niesel is a conductor of great skill. So is Frederick Stock, who followed Theodore Thomas as conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Theodore Spearing, formerly concertmaster of the Philharmonic Orchestra, proved himself an excellent conductor. But that a little Polish woman could handle with ease two instruments and sing like an angel besides, borders on the fantastic. Geraldine Morgan is an admirable violin artiste who plays solo as well as quartet with equal authority. Maud Powell has fulfilled her early promise. She is a mature artiste, one who will never be finished, because she will always study, always improve. A Joachim pupil, she is nevertheless a pupil of Maud Powell, and her playing reveals breadth, musicianship, beauty of tone, and phrasing. She is our greatest American violin virtuosa. I wrote this of Misha Elman, the first of the many Mishas and Yashas who mew on the fiddle strings, after I heard him play in London. United to an amazing technical precision, there is a still more amazing emotional temperament, all dominated by a powerful musical and mental intellect, uncanny in one not yet out of his teens. What need to add that his conception of Beethoven is neither as lovely as Chrysler's nor as fascinating as Issei's. Elman will mature. In the romantic or the virtuoso realm he is past master. His tone is lava-like in its warmth. He paints with many colors. He displays numberless nuances of feeling. The musical in him dominates the virtuoso. Naturally, the pride of hot youth asserts itself, and often, self-intoxicated, he intoxicates his audiences with his sensuous, compelling tone. Hebraic, tragic, melancholy, the boisterousness of the Russian, the swift modulation from mad caprice to Slavic despair, Elman is a magician of many moods. When I listen to him, I almost forget Issei. 
Yet when I heard Issei play last season, it was Elman that I forgot for the moment. After all, a critic too may have his moods. And now comes another conqueror, the lad Yasha Heifetz from Russia, a pupil of Leopold Auer, and an artist of such extraordinary attainments that the greatest among contemporary violinists, is it necessary to mention names, have said of him that his art begins where theirs ends, and that they will shut up shop when he plays here. All of which is a flattering tribute, but it has been made before. Heifetz, however, may be the dark horse in the modern fiddle sweepstakes. End of chapter 28